drop. Hey there, everyone. My name is Christian Wynn, and you're listening to Story Fort Presents Voices of Tree Fort Music Fest, a weekly podcast that dives into the stories behind Boise's Festival of Discovery. Tree Fort Music Fest brings in hundreds of artists from all over the globe every March, though this March we have uh, not happened. And this September, we have not happened because of COVID, but we are currently scheduled for September of 2021. But hey, we're still here to tell you about all things Tree Fort. And today, Larry Rosen and I co-host the episode with our wonderful authors, Carrie Callahan and Rita Woods. Both of them write historical fiction and are amazing, strong, interesting women, cat lovers, former bodybuilders, or at least one of them is. Also, that one, Rita, is a doctor as well. So we'll get to hear about that and the editing that Carrie does. And gosh, check out their work at CarrieCallahan.com or RitaWoodsWrites.com. And hey, we're hoping you're doing well out there. We're hanging in there. It's a hot, late, late summer, a little smoky in Boise, but hey, we're doing all right. We're putting out podcasts, and here's our latest one. So enjoy. Let's just ease into it then. Along that note, now both of you had a book come out this year, and you know I think a lot of this podcast is really going to be about talking about historical fiction but before we dive into that and and a, and a lot of covid because you really can't help but talk about covid because everyone's talking about it it's the hot thing um before we get into all that though i do want to know how the expectations you had for this year with new books coming out changed because of the realities of the world we live in you both have dates you were supposed to do on on your um on your websites. And I think Christian was saying, Rita, was it you? Were you at a festival right before this or, or a big event right before they shut everything down? I was actually at C2E2, which is, um, you know, basically Comic-Con the weekend of March 1st. And then I was supposed to fly to Houston and then directly from Houston to New Orleans for the Tennessee Williams Festival. Oh, wow. So that would have been like March 20th or something. So we shut down what five days before that or something. And they were like, Oh yeah, you could still come into Louisiana. It's like, I don't think so. Do you, do you remember that, that sense (laughs) in early March that you'd still be able, we were still incrementally, they were incrementally taking things away. Yes. Yeah. One by one, you were losing. What was the feeling at that festival you were at where people think, Oh, no big deal. Or were there some, I think it was it, what was sort of happening was there people would you first get the email that said, well, we're not really sure. So we might we might cancel it. And then you get an email saying, well, so and so is pulling out. And then you would get that final and say so at that point, most of us just went, you know, cancel the ticket because we knew within four or five days you were going to get the email that said, we are so sorry. It's all canceled. So at the one in. In New Orleans, I had about uh, two or three book signings at bookstores as well. And so the festival canceled, but the bookstores weren't quite ready to cancel. Mm-hmm. 
And I just thought, I'm not flying to New Orleans. The big event is canceled. So that's a little scary to be flying into Louisiana um, just for that. So it was just a really strange thing. And that was my next question. At what point did it turn from, well, this is a hassle and this is a disappointment to, wait a minute, I don't think I want to risk this. Yeah. I think that was the one for me Um, because I had probably two or three festivals or things after that. But once the Tennessee Williams, which was the middle of March, canceled, I just sort of just said to my husband and my and my employer, my job, I, you know, I don't think I don't think it's going to happen for the rest of the summer. I think this is just kind of rolling out Uh, right now. Funny thing is I was invited to the L.A. Book Fest and they didn't cancel and they're still not canceled. They postponed. They, they sent a letter that said, we're not canceling. Um, now, mind you, this was in March before they were the hottest spot in the world. Um, we're not canceling. We're, um, we're postponing till October. So theoretically, I'm still supposed to be at the LA Book Fest in October. Yeah. <laughs> well, as you were, as you're speaking, I was watching a sly little smile appear on the face of my friend Christian Wynn up there in the top left-hand corner because he under, he had that experience from the other end. As, as for yeah. story for it, there was a lot of that. We're going to do it. We're not going to do it. We're going to push it forward. Yeah, yeah, we had a lot of meetings about that stuff in the lead up to it, and you know, we had just like a week before we did put the postponement announcement out there. We did actually say we're going ahead with it because we didn't have any cases like in Idaho. Um, but it was just very clear from us on the inside, it's going, uh, I don't think that's probably the best. And then, you know, it just became very clear. And we, it was like two weeks to the day before the festival. I sent around a big email to all our story for artists and the, the announcement was made officially and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, it was, uh, we were just hope so hopeful, but then you can't be stupid about it, obviously. <laughs> so, right. It's well, so disappointing, right. but yeah. by the time by the time you guys officially disappointed, I think most of us who were going to have to travel to get there were relieved. Yeah, I'm sure. Right. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. Before, yeah, before, well, before I, I'll go ahead. I'm going to interrupt you here real quick. Um, maybe we could get a little thumbnail description of both of your books, and then kind of what you were doing at those last events. You know, so we can kind of have a little context to what you were signing mm-hmm. when you're out there and you know promoting. So Remembrance is about, um, the, the, the absolute thumbnail is Remembrance is about a voodoo priestess who creates an um, alternate universe named Remembrance that is a stop on the Underground Railroad. And the story of uh, three centuries and tells kind of the story of three to four different women who all have different powers and are connected in some way to Mother Abigail. It's an amazing book. It's really good. Thank you, Kate. Yes, I'm not. I'm going to admit I haven't gotten to much more than the reviews and the snippets yet because it was kind of a late edition, I guess, to the to the podcast here. Later edition that uh, Carrie's like, we got to have Rita on. So I su- super look forward to it for sure. But uh, yeah, Carrie, what about you? Maybe your latest book, I guess. You could talk about both of them, but you know, the news. Sure, one. yeah. No, it was my second book that came out in February, and it's called Salt the Snow, and it's historical fiction based on a real woman who was a journalist in the 1930s. Her name is Millie Bennett, and the story is a period of her life when she was covering events in Moscow in the 1930s. 
which has some really interesting parallels for today. We can talk about that later. But, um, uh, you know, the, there were a lot of Americans wondering about what was going on in the Soviet Union. So she was a journalist there. And the story begins when her Russian husband is arrested by the secret police. And no one knows why, because he wasn't involved in politics. So trying to figure out what happened to him. So I was at an event like the day before it, we closed down, um, which is, so it was a Sunday reading at Politics and Prose. I live in the DC area and I was moderating a book talk that actually that I inserted myself into because I had read an advanced copy of the book and I loved it so much and saw that the author, Monica Zagustova, was coming to DC to talk about her book, Dressed for Dance, Dressed for a Dance in the Snow. And I wrote Politics and Prose and said, I love this book. Can I please moderate it? Because it's an amazing account. It's an oral history account of seven women who survived the Soviet gulag. And because of my book, there was a little bit of echo there. Um, but And so before we had the event, me and Monica had a lot of back and forth. Are we going to do it? Are we not? Um, and she, who was traveling from Spain, really wanted to go forward with the event. And I said, okay, well, if, if you want to do it, I'm not going to be the one to cancel it. So I will come. And everyone was nervous. The event was a little um, tense in the sense that we had this very new then setup of the chairs being far apart mm -hmm. and the audience being a little bit sparse, but it still felt like a really beautiful affirmation of the ability of humans to persevere in difficult times because the oral histories that Monica was talking about in her book are women who, for the most part, viewed their suffering as sort of a crucible that they endured and then came out better on the other end. And so in spite of the very serious subject matter, it was an op optimistic story. And so it did kind of feel like the necessary injection of literary wholesomeness that we needed before going into this shutdown. Right. You know, each, each of you had events planned to promote these new books. How did they get I guess what I'm, I'm circling around is at the beginning of this, was there a meeting with your publishers, with publicists, with whoever to lay out a new strategy? I'm, I'm assuming you've done Zoom events, interviews like that. When did that sort of take shape and how did it take shape? I don't know that for me, I don't know that my publisher or my publicist got that much involved with the direct kind of transition. Um, a lot of the, what happened was organizers of the original events would get in touch and say there was a, an event in Minneapolis and they, they would get in touch and say, okay, we're going to do it this way. Are you still on with that? The New Orleans people got in touch and said, we're going to transition it to this sort of format. Are you okay with that? So that tended to be, at least for me, what, what it ended up happening was most of the organizers kind of were scrambling to try to still make something happen, and we just kind of transitioned into some other format. I, I guess so the question I'm, I'm getting at, though, is are publishers responding to this change, or are they trying to go about business as usual? I think publishers are struggling too, right? Mm -hmm. You know, their incomes have been affected. I, like Rita, I haven't heard a lot from, from my publisher in terms of guidance, um, that they're certainly being supportive where they can, but I get the sense that they too are just sort of wandering around in the dark, looking for the wall, trying to find their way out. And Rita, this is your first book. Right. 
So what were your expectations coming into it? <laughs> it's so it's almost embarrassing. Um, you know, I still had that old fashioned expectation of, you know, I wrote this book. Some, you know, people will sell it. I don't know how, how that happens. I didn't even morning America this week. <laughs> right. I didn't even know. I just found out. This is so embarrassing. I just found out somebody was talking to me um, about, a, about a month ago, and they said, you know, talk to me about NetGalley. I was like, who is that? I don't, <laughs> what is NetGalley? You know, so I, I, I was just completely oblivious. I just kind of. I guess I guess the long the short answer is I didn't really have a lot of expectations. I just wanted it to be like it is on the Lifetime Channel, where you know you just you write your book, you get this check, and then you have this beautiful house in Maine that you can write for the rest of your life. Sure. <laughs> you know, that. like that, right, Carrie? Yeah, yeah, that's exactly how it works out. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I thought. Before, and, and I want to spend a lot of time talking about why you both chose to write historical fiction and what that means. And once I get done being impressed by the size of Rita's coffee mug right there. <laughs> it's a coffee bowl. It's <laughs> coffee from a bowl. <laughs> With a handle. That's how it's done properly. You took very different routes to becoming novelists. Um, and Rita, yours is really interesting to me. And, and are you, so I know you were, well, Here's what I got from your bio. You are a practicing medical doctor and a former bodybuilder. Yes. So, but you've been a practicing doctor for quite a while. Mm-hmm. About where, 112 years. 112 years, yeah, see? Mm -hmm. So where does writing a novel figure into that? Whenever I hear about someone who's had success in another career first, I think, oh, were they always a frustrated novelist? Or did they come to this idea a little bit later? Um, I always wanted to be a writer, um, just always. Um, I was a weird kid, and all I did was wanted to do was read and hang out in the library, and all my friends were like 70. Um, and so that's all I you know, ever wanted to do. But my parents were both educators, and they, you know, their idea of what a really, really smart black girl did was go to law school, medical school, become an architect, something that has, you know, health benefits. And um, like I said, I was this shy, like, okay. And my mom was sort of, well, you know, you can write novels in your spare time, you know, and, and during your residency. So um, I still wrote little short stories and things like that. And then I became a medical resident and just lost my mind and didn't write anything for years. Um, and then I, w I was a lobbyist on the Hill for a while. I lobbied on the Hill for a while. And, um, I, I ran, when I was, um, in Capitol Hill, I ran into someone that had known me just that I always had wanted to be a writer. And one of the things that way people would greet me would be to say, what have you written lately? And so I hadn't seen this guy in years and from way across the rotunda, he goes, what have you written lately? And I thought, nothing. Not a thing. Prescriptions. And um, so I thought, I need to do something about that. <laughs> so so and did that's you, what I did. Did you find inspiration from other doctors turned writers like William Carlos Williams and Ethan Kanan? You know, not so much. Um, 
And, and, and people always ask, why do you not write medical things? I guess because that is a part of your brain that you want to, that I want to turn completely off. I am not interested in anything that I do in my, in my day job. So, you know, I was more inspired more by literary, you know, people who were writers for, for real, you know, writers from that had gone through the MFA programs and the Iowa programs. I wanted to be like those people. I, I meant more in a time management way. <laughs> Oh, that. Oh, God. (laughs) How long did it take you to, while you were, you know, in your practice, how long did it take you once you had that moment in the rotunda to kind of create this novel, Remembrance? I mean, I think it would be pretty tough. It's tough anyway, but just if you have a busy life as a doctor. And is it your first novel? So I wrote one that I self-published, and I think I sold, you know, 12 copies, and there were about four of them in my my garage. Um, So I had written that, and... I actually don't think it's bad. I might dig it out one day. Um, but it took, you know, it took a few years, you know, two, three, two, two and a half years to write it just because, well, <laughs> you know, because right now I consider my schedule very light and I'm only working 50 hours a week. Hmm. But, at, you know, at one time it was probably double that. So I just didn't have the bandwidth to, and I was on call all the time. There's only 168 hours in a week. Yep. So when did you write? When I, okay, so you would get, a lot of times I would, you know, get by on two or three hours of sleep a night. Um, Residency is a really good training ground for that. Um, And then I would try to take one weekend off a month. Well, actually, I didn't try to take, it was the only time I had off. And, And then try to have one block of time where you'd have four, five, six hours and you could just... That's what I can do. So, so it wasn't a regular everyday type of thing. It was when you could. When I could. Wow. Yep. Wow. I'd and, been feeling bad for myself and my schedule, but no, no longer. That's much worse. <laughs> oh uh, yeah. <laughs> well, it, and Carrie, it seems like it seems like you've been working toward a career as a writer all along. But at one point, you did get a master's in international relations from uh, or international affairs from Johns Hopkins. Yeah. Was that part of the same path? Oh, yeah. I, I have a day job. <laughs> you do? Okay. Yes, in international relations. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So when do you find time to write? And how do you, how do you manage it? And not only when do you find time to write, but you also seem to be very active in the writing world, in the writing community. Um, I, well, to the second part of the question, I hope so. Yeah, I mean, I get a lot out of interacting with writers and other authors. I think writers are usually really wonderful people, um, particularly because there's a certain amount of sympathy and empathy that's involved in thinking like a writer, and that tends to make writers really nice people to interact with. Um, and I love building that and being a part of that writerly community. And then to as to when I find time to write, I have two young kids who you are probably going to hear coming and going as we're recording this. So I write when they go to bed, which is usually about, you know, gives me about an hour a night, and it adds up. So like I said, I'd been feeling bad for myself compared to my friends who get to write full time. But uh, Rita definitely has me beat for only one weekend a month when she's been chronically sleep deprived in the interim. I just don't know how you would manage to rev it back up if you weren't doing it regularly. You know, that's an incredible feat to me that out of nowhere, like, all right, I got my one weekend a month. Boom, go. Six hours. (laughs) Yeah. Well, necessity. Yeah. Yeah. Um. 
Carrie, I, I mean, Rita just said that, you know, being a doctor during the day, she wants to just shove that aside when she writes. Your day job, which is in international affairs, which sounds very James Bondian to me. Uh, <laughs> no. <laughs> is it the same sort of experience for you or does it feed what you write? So I, I work at the State Department. I'm a political analyst there focusing on Latin America. And my experience feeds what I write in the sense that I am deeply interested in power relationships between people and in the history that informs how contemporary politics are shaped. But I don't want to write about my day job. So like Rita said, that it sort of exists in a separate part of my brain. Um, I don't I don't want to write about diplomacy. I don't want to write about the countries that I happen to look at at work, partly because it's a logistical matter. If I don't write about what I'm doing at work, I don't have to ask permission for having written about it and ask permission to publish about it. Um, and so I can feel creatively free, but also it's like, it's fun to learn new things. I think, I, I don't want to speak for Rita, but I think we've talked about this in the past where part of what we love about historical fiction is the opportunity to learn something new through the process of research. And that's fantastic. So. All right, let's dive yeah. into some historical fiction. Christian. Okay. Well, we're living in an extraordinary time right now, historically. Um, we don't know what's going to happen next, but it's going to be crazy, I'm sure. But um, how are you adding it up, I mean, in your historical fiction brains and process? Are you kind of keeping a log? Are you kind of really keeping track in case you go back to this later? Or how do you think writers in the historical fiction um, genre, and other writers too, but how, you, how do you think they're going to, I don't know, use this, this time at a future date? And how soon will the first decent COVID book be out. You know what? Can I back up there for a second? Sure. First of all, how much time would have to pass before a book about now could be considered historical fiction? Mm. Typically, the genre defines historical fiction as being at least a generation in the past. Um, and so today, the sort of leading edge of historical fiction is 1960s, 1950s, 1960s, something like that. So where, you know, at least a number of people reading it have no personal memory of what happened. So we're a little far, we're far out on that. Yeah. But I think there's still something to consider in, ter in terms of how we look at the historical record that we're leaving. I mean, I've certainly had novelist thoughts with that in that regard. Um, the novel I wrote, Salt the Snow, which takes place in the 1930s, was based on letters, hundreds and hundreds of letters that Millie Bennett and her friends wrote to one another. Are we going to have emails that account for people's experiences in COVID times? Are they saved letters? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. She saved her letters because she knew what she was doing was important. Is, is that where you started with this book? No, uh, I started with books. Um, with a, I actually came to Millie indirectly researching Spain. She spent some time in Spain for the Spanish Civil War, and I thought she was pretty fascinating. She was one of the first female war correspondents to report under fire. And so I was intrigued by her story from there, and, um, and then eventually found my way into the archives, which is where her letters were from. Or letters were stored, but in terms of, 
you know, thinking about the historical record we leave today, I've been trying to be more regular in my journal writing, partly thinking like, well, I don't know, maybe someday somebody will want to see what our internal thoughts were at this time. Uh, what about you, Rita? What do you think? So, you know, I, there are some already some parallels. There's a, a few books that are out now kind of about the 1918 pandemic. And I think that, you know, there are definitely going to be some, it's, it's unavoidable, I mean, this time, but there's so many parallels to other periods of time, even in the, you know, early 20th century. I'm not really keeping any kind of notes, partly because I, as a coping mechanism, it, I find it overwhelming. I find it more, um, more cathartic to go back to those parallel times and, and sort of revisit those and, you know, that people, we did survive it somehow, most of us. There were people that survived the 1918 pandemic. There were people who survived the rise of Nazism, um, fascism in the 30s and 40s. So for me, that's much more, and again, as a you know, historical novelist, I find that more comforting I feel more overwhelmed if I try to keep a, a, a kind of a concurrent um, record mm. of what's happening now. Well, I have just a quick question for Carrie, because I'm doing the same thing, but my journal is like Groundhog Day. My much. journaling is very infrequent. It has gone from once every three months to maybe once a month. So that's my yeah. attempt to journal. It's nothing consistent. <laughs> Mine's every day. Uh, that's so, great. You will be a resource for future right. historical novelists wondering right. what the experience was. They'll be going, God, this poor guy. Um, well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but a question, a more general question about historical fiction, um, because I'm curious, I've never had the urge to do historical fiction. So if you're writing a historical novel, is it a novel set against a backdrop or is it a novel about a time? I think historical fiction is a piece of fiction that uses history as a narrative element. So it could be set in the past, but have no connection with history. Like I just read a book called the dictionary of animal languages that is actually set in part um, in the 1930s, but you would have no idea from reading it because there is no sense of history in the narrative. So that book really, I think is just literary fiction. Okay. Um, of course, you can have literary historical fiction with it, which I think both Rita and I write. But to me, if it's qualified as literary or as historical fiction, history plays some role, whether it's just deeply informing the, the setting or whether it's because historical events as we know them today play a role in the characters' lives. What do you right. think, Rita? And I, you know, I, I agree with that. I think in some ways, your historical setting is actually character as much as your protagonist and antagonist. So like if you're writing something like to Carrie's point, if you, if you're writing a care, a woman in the 1930s, the historical context of it is going to define her reactions and, or certainly how uh, other characters react to her. So her circumstances are dictated by that. So you're not going to have a 1930s, if she makes the decision, for instance, like in Carrie's novel, um, about marriage and children, the reaction of the everything around her is going to be very different than someone who makes that decision in 2020. So setting an historical setting is, to me, is as much a character. It informs action, reaction, as well as, as, well as circumstance. 
What you just described, Rita, sounds like a really big challenge for anyone rooted in the present to have to constantly remind yourself to stay in that era. It, it can be. Um, you know, you're writing a scene and, uh, you know, I just, um, so I belong to this writing group and I was writing this, I, so I'm writing this novel that's set in 1930s, 1940s Detroit. And um, so I'm writing this character who doesn't, for instance, doesn't want to get, wants to get married, but that's not a priority for her. And people define her as kind of weird. And the, the beta readers were kind of offended by that. Like, well, her choice is, is, is valid. I'm like, I, I hear you, but that would not have been the reaction in 1937. And it, it must be especially challenging when, you know, you think of, like in that case, the reaction at that time is not anything that would be considered okay now. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. There's a lot of things that you're going to write in, if it takes place in 1918 or 1922 or 1962 that, and, and things, stuff that will come out of your mouth would come out of a character's mouth that would absolutely be considered right. inappropriate now. But, and, but if you're going yeah. to write historical fiction, it has to be true to the time, I, I think. Yeah, one of the challenges, sorry, one of the challenges I had in writing Salt the Snow on that front is that it's set between 1933 and 1936, mostly in Moscow in the Soviet Union. And that was a time when America was coming out, well, was in the Depression and then coming out of the Depression. And so a lot of Americans thought capitalism is washed up. It is a wreck. What else are we going to do? And so it looked from their view that Soviet Union had what was going to be a really viable system. There had been a lot of difficulties in the Soviet economy in the 1920s, but by the time you got to 1933, things were actually improving. So they didn't know that the, the Stalin death trials and, or the Stalin trials and the death camps were coming up. They didn't know that World War II was coming up. And to them, it, you know, Soviet-style socialism looked really plausible. Tell that to a 21st century reader, you know, particularly someone who might be more conservative as a reader, um, that's a hard sell. And it was a, a really big challenge for me to try to get readers to understand Millie's innocence with regard to history and with regard to the things we know that's coming in history, um, which is kind of fun. It's fun to have a challenge yeah. in writing. Well, did you find that at times you had to take care, because you both write with women protagonists, and um, Rita, you, you know, yours is involving the ground, Underground Railroad. Did you find you had secondary characters whose attitudes now would be considered sexist, racist, whatever, but you still had to show people that they were okay people for their time? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, there is one character in the book that, in my mind, he's, he's actually a good guy, but he's a slave trader. And 91, <laughs> you know, and I mean, he does have a, an, an evolution, but you don't, you need to be clear that, you know, looking at it from a 21st century, through a 21st century lens, a 21st century black urban, however you're coming from lens is, is not really what was going on. And you can't, we can, but it's going to be harder to judge people and they're not going to perform in a way that seems, it might seem wrong to you, but if you step back and go, but this is 1860 and in the South and, you know, white man of, from the rural South, 
this is what he's going to say and this is what he's going to believe. It doesn't mean he's bad. You have to understand you're judging him from a different, through a different, completely different lens. So you guys have to have fealty to the era in which you're writing. Yes. And, and, and I think that's one of the gifts of historical fiction to attentive readers in the sense that it reminds people that we are all, to some extent, products of our times. And, um, and hopefully that encourages readers to maybe approach one another today with a little bit more forgiveness and also with optimism about how we are, well, our times can change. And mm-hmm. so that means that things can get better and we have it within us to grow. So forgiveness, but also hope. Is that a stated purpose of of writing historic fiction? I don't think we could speak for the community, but um, it certainly is for me. Um, I think that historical fiction writers are absolutely writing with one foot in the present and one foot in the past. Uh, There is no point in writing a story that is completely faithful to the past and representing the past. I mean, for one, it would be impossible. We are both 21st century creatures. We couldn't channel the 1770s in a completely 1770s way. Um, We're channeling it in a way that is processed through our lens of 21st century sensibilities. Um, And I think that's okay because we are writing for 21st century readers who have 21st century questions. And I think we're using the past uh, as a way to think about those contemporary questions. What are your best resources? You mentioned mentioned the the letters, but to get back into that time period, I mean, I'm sure it varies on how far back you go, but um, for both of you, what are some of your best resources um, as a writer to get into that headspace of the zeitgeist for lack of a better term, or just these characters' mindsets and what they would say and how they would act. And I think it'd be very difficult to have to have that, that litmus test when you're writing. I feel like I'm a fiction writer, but I get to make stuff up and how they talk to each other and all that sort of thing. So mm-hmm. mostly write contemporary stories. But uh, so I, I think it'd be so hard, but really kind of, you know, fascinating to do. But anyway, maybe Carrie, what are some other resources? We'll start with you and then move to Rita. I always start with books and to find the right books when I'm at a loss. Sometimes what I'll do is search for college courses that are being taught on that time period. And then I'll look at their syllabus um, and then pick a good book from the syllabus. And then if that works for me and that book has been helpful, then I look at the bibliography from that book and, you know, you just kind of drill and wander And sometimes, honestly, uh, I go to used bookstores and wander around, and I found amazing things just through the serendipity of a used bookstore. Uh, It is both, I think, uh, there's a method and then there's a madness to it, and it would be hard to to choose one or the other. And what's a bigger driver for each of you, wanting to disappear into that era or wanting to get it right? Accuracy. Accuracy. Um, for me, it's, it's disappearing into the era. Um, I think you can get it right or as right as you can if you're really um, diligent about drilling down. And, you know, Carrie and I have kind of alluded to that and talked about it a little bit is you, you think you know what you're looking for and then you find a map or a letter or um, some, a marriage certificate or something, photos, and suddenly you're, you have this idea or at least a different perspective of what you thought you were looking for, and it leads you down this rabbit hole to another direction. And 
I, you get so much in, at least for me, I, I'm not going to speak for Carrie, but you get so involved in that. You're living in that era. Um, you truly are. You know what they were eating. You know, I mean, and there are times when you, you know, you're doing the research, you go, oh God, I would never eat that. But <laughs> you're, you're just all into it. You know what they wore. And, um, and I know for me, sometimes there are books and there are other resources where you can talk, um, learn the slang of the era so I think it's living in the time and the space co as completely as possible. And I think that's how you get it right, by being as absorbed and um, immersed in that time as possible. Does it make it hard to interact with people in the present when you're really deep? You start using some of that slang and they're like, what are you talking about? <laughs> no, I mean, and Carrie, you could talk about it. The thing that makes it hard is that you become really strange. You'll say stuff like, do you know where turpentine comes from. Let me tell you about the trees, because it's not just any tree. It is. And let me tell you about the different uses for castor oil and people are like, oh, God. <laughs> yeah, we're really popular at parties, let me tell you. <laughs> With Trivia Pursuit, we got it, though. <laughs> oh, maybe you. I'm still terrible at it, unfortunately. <laughs> well, what attracted both of you to writing historical fiction as opposed to contemporary fiction? For me, it was sort of, um, I mean, I guess in terms of my writing, it was an evolution. My my first book that was published was my fifth manuscript um, that I'd written, and the first two were mostly contemporary, although it seemed like as my writing went on, I just got more and more interested in history, and then I realized, you know, I've always loved history academically, and writing these stories gives me a chance to have a structured approach to my curiosities. And so it gives me an excuse to totally nerd out on, you know, like Rita's nerding out on turpentine. I was nerding out on the Spanish civil war. Um, like, Oh, Carrie, you've really got to do your homework and read all these books about the Spanish civil war says one side of my brain. And then the other side of my brain is like, cool, we get to do this. Right. And uh, so it, it kind of helps keep me disciplined and um and then there is one you know the more I got into it the more I realized that I am still deeply involved in these issues that I'm grappling with in my life but by putting them at the remove of history I think I'm able to process them mm -hmm. a little bit easier like my first book is about a 17th century Dutch artist Judith Leister who is the only woman to have her own painting workshop in the Dutch golden era of painters and so that book was about female ambition and also sacrifice in interpersonal relationships. And that was something I was grappling with. How much do we give of ourselves? How much is too much? How much is not enough? How much do we let our ambition drive our lives versus the debts that we owe one another? And so as a mother, as a working mother, those were all things I was really thinking about. And writing about Judith gave me a way to process them. That's a really interesting take on, I think, what a lot of fiction writers how a lot of fiction writers process their lives through their characters, but to do it at that remove, you know, you went to a whole different time period to do it. Um, what, and what about you, Rita? You know, you had a lot of time to think about what you were going to write about. What made, what drew you to historical fiction? I, I think I'm like Carrie. I, one of my favorite subjects in school was always history. And if history feels to me like it's like a treasure hunt, that there are all these stories that people have forgotten. And it's always surprising to me when people, other people don't get as excited. 
like you're reading something and you hear a story about the dismal swamp. I never heard about the dismal swamp before. Oh, I just, I got to know everything there is. And then when you find all this information and other people are just like, that's so interesting. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm thinking, you don't find that fascinating? And the other thing that always drew me was, um, and this might be the medicine part of it, is the finiteness of life. You, when you're doing research or when you're digging into history, things that were so um, important in 1898 or 1920 or 1942, people that were, would be considered celebrities at that time, for instance, or the, or the, the big news stories, are often forgotten. They, they, people just don't remember them. And to me, that seems sad because I think that informs where, how we got to where we are now. Mm-hmm. I think it informs who we are as people, who we are as a nation. And I don't, there's so many stories that I don't think should be forgotten. Or if you remind people, um, I think there are lessons to be learned from those. Yeah, I think when you look at the stories that have been forgotten, in a way, it's sort of an x-ray on some of our power structures. Um, thinking about Judith Leister from my first book, she was a very successful, well, uh, healthily successful. She wasn't among the most prominent, but she certainly did good trade in the early 17th century. And then um, 60 years after her death, every single one of her paintings was attributed to a man. And nobody knew who she was or that she had painted these paintings that continued to hang in galleries in people's homes. And it wasn't until the late 19th century when somebody was looking to validate that a painting had actually been painted by Franz Halls, who was one of the more prominent members of Harlem. Um, And they looked at this very fancy monogram that to my eye looks exactly like JL, um, but they had convinced themselves that it was FH because that's what they wanted it to be. And he figured out that no, in fact, this was painted by a woman named Judith Leister. And it was only at that point that they started rediscovering who she was. But I think that that erasure was maybe not intentional consciously, but intentional maybe at a subconscious level and a sociological level because women's contributions weren't valuable. It was more convenient if these paintings were painted by famous men. And so when we look back, we have a chance to understand how we got where we are because again we're, we're putting that x-ray on the power structures looking at it through that lens it seems like you're taking on an extra responsibility by choosing to write about historic figures as opposed to just making someone up out of thin air yeah it can be <laughs> my next my next book is going to have mostly invented characters i think well, for that reason but, but what is that responsibility? I mean, you're, you're right. It's fiction. It's not nonfiction. And I'm not going to ask that dumb question. Why fiction? Why not nonfiction? But there is, you know, I'm, I'm sure you want to get everything right, but it's also fiction. Where do, where do you draw that line then? So I, the, the book that I'm writing now is the people that were, that are real, that were real. Um, so I'm dry. I want to tell their story. The protagonist is not is a fictional character, but the world that she lived in, the Roxbor- who are the Roxboroughs, they were um, the most prominent 
uh, black Republicans in Michigan history. And Joe Lewis is, it was, there were five brothers and Joe Lewis, uh, his manager was a Roxborough and, you know, biggest number of runners in Michigan was also a Roxborough. They just kind of covered all the careers. Um, <laughs> but it's not their story, but they inform the story of the, um, of the protagonist. And so you want to get that right. And so your responsibility is to portray them in a way that, well, there's a couple of things. I don't, I don't want them to be caricatures. I want them to be fully formed, fully formed human beings with faults and, and, um, and things that make them wonderful people and why they should be remembered. Um, so you place your story in that place. You have your fictional characters kind of weave. They're the gel that holds all of that together. Mm -hmm. um, and you just have an idea of what, what is the story you're trying to tell? You know, what is the vision that you, how do you see that, that, that time in that place? And, and how, how much do readers of historical fiction, and I don't know if there's people who only read historical fiction, but people who are enthusiasts of historical fiction, how much do they hold you to being accurate? Do you ever oh. get letters like, hey, you know, it wasn't March 12th, it was March 13th? I, I don't know what Carrie's experience is, but they do. Um, I, in remembrance, I made a reference to um, South, what did I, uh, West Virginia. And someone sent me an email that said, well, in 1857, there was no West Virginia. There was only Virginia. West Virginia only split from Virginia in such and such a year. But other than that, the book was good. But how did you feel? Thank you. I, I wasn't offended by that at all. I was like, really? That's interesting. Again, as a historical fiction writer, you're like, well, I'm going to look that up. I don't know if that's right. Um, but you do, and, and I'm sure Carrie too, you do try to get it as accurately as possible. As a history nerd, you just do that anyway. I think, that, I think that's just hardwired into you. If you don't know it, you look it up. When did buttons start being used on shirt collars? Well, I'm going to look that up. <laughs> I'm a yeah. history nerd too, and it is, it, it's important. Um, and Carrie, any tales of history nerdness? Oh my gosh, don't get me started. Um, oh no, you're I, I, started. Yeah, I know, that's right. I haven't had anyone um, write me to correct anything, which doesn't mean there, there haven't been errors, but I think from the writer's standpoint, I think there's sort of two different ways that we use or ways we can misuse history. Um, one is the purposeful manipulation because we need to change something to serve the story. And those things I try to fess up to in the author's note at the end to say, like, these are the things I've changed. Um, of course, there are many minor things that I imagine most people won't. But then there's also the mistake. Um, and I actually think mistakes are fine because we all make mistakes. You, you can't you, – sometimes you don't even know what you need to look up. Um, like, Rita yeah. didn't know she needed to look up Virginia versus West Virginia. Um, <laughs> another historical author friend of mine, Lewis Bayard, was saying that somebody wrote him a letter giving him a hard time because there was no such and such a bird east of the Mississippi at the time that he wrote his novel. Like, well, he didn't need to know, or he didn't know he needed to look that up. Right. And I read his novel and had no idea when he said that the, you know, whatever, the mockingbird or whatever was uh, trilling along the riverbanks. Um, the point, the point of a, not making a mistake is only that you don't want to interrupt the fictional dream. 
And for most readers, they are also not going to know that there weren't mockingbirds in Kentucky at such and such time. Um, but for that one person, you know, maybe it right. did. What I hope is that readers also approach this with a spirit of generosity, but mm -hmm. um, not all of them do. And that's fine. You know, that's, that's humanity. I make those judgments of books sometimes, um, just like you have a, a very famous author who I will not name, um, said a story in Boise um, in his first collection, and there were some, uh, there were some errors. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. If, it's, oh, if it's something that's important to you, then, you know, the, the author probably is going to lose you. Um, and I'm also okay with that, too. Like, if there is that, that bird enthusiast out there, and I've written about the wrong bird, and I've lost them, like, uh, you know, I'm sorry, yeah. I lost you. <laughs> I did have a question too um, for Rita. You have obviously write magical realism and historical fiction in one book. And like, how does that work for you? And what, you know, I'm just curious how that process came or just blended together those two genres. And uh, do you still consider it historical fiction or traditional historical fiction, or would you consider this kind of a, a mashup? Yeah, I think it's more of a mashup. It's more speculative than the traditional historical fiction. Um, and, you know, I knew, honestly, I wanted to tell the story about um, a priest, you know, someone who used the power to create a, create a sanctuary. So it didn't really start out as historical per se, other than the Underground Railroad piece. But as I delved, again, that sort of the rabbit hole thing syndrome, um, as I you know, delved into, well, what, what is the source of her power? Well, she came from Haiti. Well, in that time period, what was happening in Haiti? You, begin, you know, I got caught up in the whole Haitian Revolution and the planner class and, and um, that whole, um, you know, that whole avenue kind of opened up. And so that had to become a really big part of the book. And so even though, you know, it's magical realism and that part of it is speculative, I, I wanted to still um, be true to the whole history of New Orleans and Haiti and, and slavery in the United States at that, as, as it existed at that time. Yeah. <clears throat> Have you read The Water Dancer by chance, the Connie Easycoat's novel? I have not yet. I have not. He, yeah, he actually came to Boise before lockdown and had a great like reading. And his, his novel does a lot of those same things as far as right. it's set during the time of slavery and, you know, but yet it's, well, you know, there's, there's magical powers at work for right. the protagonist. And so I wondered if you had read his book uh, yet, but I, I'd recommend it for sure. Yep, definitely. So we are closing in on an hour here and I noticed Carrie switched to water. So we must be running out of time. Um, <laughs> I had a couple more questions, though. I had a question for both of you. Um, it's a, kind of a meta question. Is there ever a moment, it, or describe to me a moment, because I'm going to assume this moment happens when you're doing research, where you find something that is truly thrilling? Absolutely. Of course. And how great is that feeling? T tell me one time when you found something researching this book. And, and by the way, full disclosure, I'm more of like, I'm interested in local history. So when I read about your book, I Googled Millie, Millie Valley oh, yeah. for an hour. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Um, yeah, she, she does have a lot of local connections. Um, you probably saw that she wrote for some newspapers in San Francisco. Yes. Yeah, um, she went, she pulled a Nellie Blyde and went undercover as a maid in a um, working class newspaper. Yeah, super cool. 
Um, my, actually, the most exciting part of the writing for me has been when I have intuited something about the characters that has, um, has proven to be meaningful. Um, and I'll give an example from the Judith Leister book. She was presenting an application to become, though she obviously had to present an application to join the Master's Guild. And in order to do that, you would have to show a masterpiece, like a painting that you would show, that you would present to a board of members of the Guild, and they would determine whether or not you were worthy of participating in the Guild. And so I had to write this scene where Judith stands in front of, I forget how many, I think four men uh, who were judging her and then a crowd of other men who would be watching and she would be the only woman in the room. And we knew that there were about 16, or there were about 16 paintings that we had identified as belonging to her, her work, but scholars didn't know which one she had presented as her masterpiece, but I still had to write the scene. So I guessed and I chose her self-portrait because it's a very bold portrait. She's got her mouth open as if she's speaking. She's wearing really fine clothing. She's holding a huge handful of brushes. She's saying to the viewer, I am worthy, I am talented, and I am in your face. And I thought, you know what, this is just the kind of bold thing that this woman would do. She would show these men how worthy she was. So that's how I wrote it. And then just a few months later, I was talking to a leading scholar and she said, Carrie, we've we think we've identified which painting Judith used. We think it was her self-portrait. And so I just got like huge goosebumps from that, that I knew I had understood her in a way that, um, that gave me hope. That's great. Um, writing historical fiction must be like having a time machine. <laughs> that would be easier if you had the time machine. You <laughs> could just go back, especially if we could keep our phones and just sort of... <laughs> Right, right. I don't know. It sounds pretty cool. We're we're at an hour, Mr. Wynn. You got anything for me? Well, I guess I had a couple things to ask about uh, maybe extracurricular activities during this uh, lockdown time. Um, I wanted to ask Carrie first because I saw this pretty cool thing on your blog where you like to cook. Oh, some of the the I mean the various I guess uh, foods that your characters eat and. Uh, <laughs> There was one, I think it was from a light of her own time, but like wine gelatins, which I don't know what that is, but I saw a picture of it on your blog. But uh, tell us about other dishes you've cooked or maybe ones that have been something you've continued to eat, or maybe you don't have any of those. I don't know. <laughs> well, it's actually more alcoholic drinks that my characters have consumed. <laughs> um, there's a little bit of cooking involved, but um, so Rita and I both have participated in these uh, monthly historical fiction happy hours that I co-host with another author, Linnea Hartsuker. And um, one of the things we do is do a sort of show and tell and particularly, not exclusively, but particularly fo focused on sharing historical drink recipes. And so that has been both a driver and an outlet for my pre-existing interest in seeing what my characters drank. And because I knew so much about Millie Bennett because of her letters, I knew that she had gone into the Metropole Hotel of Moscow and on the sly made wine gelatins. 
So I figured out how to make wine gelatins, which is essentially like the 1930s jello shot. Yeah. Yeah, except just using wine. Um, and because I'm vegetarian, I used uh, agar agar and gelatin. So, how was uh, it? It was great. <laughs> yeah, really good. And especially with the red wine, if you top it then with like um, with uh, whipped cream, it's a very luscious dessert. It sounds like it'd be better than a jello shot, actually. Yeah. Particularly with the agar agar, that changes the texture so it doesn't have that really bouncy mouthfeel. The agar agar makes it feel more like jam. And so it's just very smooth. Um, but I also have made gin fizzes, which she drank in San Francisco during Prohibition. There was a, a dive bar that, you know, was a speakeasy that she went to in Mill Valley. Is that? Mill Valley is where she ended yeah. up. It was crazy. Yeah. There was no Golden Gate Bridge back then. Yeah. The Mill Valley was a ferry ride away. It was really yeah. out there. Yeah, she she talked a little bit about what a haul it was to go yeah. into the city for her work. Um, but yeah, she used to drink lots of gin fizzes at the, I think it was something like Harry's Speakeasy in Mill Valley in the 1920s. Now I'm going to have so. to look and find out where that was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, so those kind of things are fun. It does recreate the past a little bit. But again, you know, we're using modern ingredients. It's always a little bit different. Right. You're not going that far. Yeah. So what about you, Rita? Did you cook any of the foods that your characters ate in remembrance, any of the corn cakes or anything? I, I did not. I, I was trying to pay um, homage to um, Haiti. And as you saw, that, did, that didn't always come out well. So I have a, <laughs> have a granddaughter who, who is my taster. And, you know, she would just on camera spit out stuff that was just <laughs> like, we didn't realize that we didn't like, um, you know, we like mango. But we didn't realize, we thought mango and papaya were the same thing. It is not. <laughs> and so, so we've been trying to, re we created a couple of things like that. Mango, the mango cocktail is very good. Papaya is not. <laughs> yeah, papaya is a, it's kind of a strange taste for sure. Um, yeah, it tastes uh, like shoes. A little bit like shoes. I guess I haven't eaten that many shoes that I know, but you know, that's a, that's a good comparison. But maybe, I don't know, we are about out of time, but like, what can we expect next? What are you working on? That, that little, you know, sort of plug for all the good stuff. Or maybe, or maybe even where we can find you online or events that are coming up if you're doing virtual readings or anything like that too. So we'll start with Rita. So um, I, I have a novel out, um, hopefully that'll be out. Um, next year and it's a again it's a magical realism but it's about a, a girl who's estranged from her family and the tradition the historical portion of it is about um, the Gullah people off the Carolina coast and um, you know how she separates from their tradition and then I'm working on a novel about uh, black midwives at the start of the um, world second world war in Detroit Oh, and um, the, I don't know, I don't have, August, I think is going to be relatively quiet, but I'm going to be a speaker at the Gwendolyn Brooks um, Book Festival, and then I was invited to also do uh, the, supposed to be in person, but I'm pretty sure that's not happening, the Louisiana Book Festival in Baton Rouge in uh, October. Mm. Yeah, probably not in person. Probably not, no. Yeah. Well, that but that means that uh, people everywhere will be able to hear you instead of just those folks in Baton Rouge. 
It's the upside. You know, yeah. what's funny is the coordinator called and, he, and the letter said, you know, I wanted to invite you to this because it's really close to far water. I need you to come to the, you know, <laughs> oh, oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> That's great. How about you, Carrie? I am writing a, um, just in the first draft stage, which all of you know is pretty excruciating, uh, of a novel that is a feminist queer retelling of Ivanhoe set in the Spanish Civil War. Oh. I have a bit of a <laughs> Spanish Civil War obsession. Um, it's pretty sweet <laughs> elevator pitch. <laughs> yeah, it's a very niche, very niche story. <laughs> Uh, but no, so I'm having fun with that. And uh, well, writing about the Spanish Civil War is tough because that, there are a lot of parallels to things happening today that can be painful to, to look at, but also can be cathartic as well as we sort of, like Rita was saying earlier, take some solace in the fact that, well, some people survived history and sometimes things, it took a while maybe, but yeah. sometimes things ended up getting better. So hopefully that'll be the case. Um and then as for where to find me, well, I think the best way is these monthly historical fiction happy hours that I host. They're a ton of fun. Each month we have two different co-hosts in addition to myself and Linnea. And we talk about history. We do show and tell. We play games. And it's the last Friday of each month from 8 to 9 Eastern time on Crowdcast. Okay. And so anybody can tune in? Just Oh, yeah, it's free. We do giveaways. And I mean, we partner with a local or with an independent bookstore each month to encourage folks to buy from independent bookstores. But yeah, it's free. Anybody can do it. That's great. Um, Larry, what else do you have for us to close us out? Uh, I don't have anything for us, Christian Wynn. It's just that we are out of time. And thank you to our guests for joining us. Yeah, just to let folks know, yeah, we are rescheduled for the third week in September 2021 and hopefully both these wonderful writers will be there to talk that about would be great books. that'd be awesome it's, it's super fun and um, we thank you so much for taking the time that's thank all thank you thank you Christian and Larry well there you have it folks that was our episode with Carrie Callahan and Rita Woods two amazing novelists and we want to thank them I want to thank Larry Rosen for being a co-host with me. And I want to thank our StoryForward crew. I want to thank the eavesdrop people for putting this out. Brett Battostain and his folks can be found at ese-drop.com. And also just TreeFort. And all you awesome fans, you can find out more about TreeFort at treefortmusicfest.com. And gosh, you know, enjoy it out there. Be safe. Be well. We'll come at you with some more podcasting next week. So take care. And in September 2021, we will see you at the fest. Tomorrow, but tomorrow never came.